75 years ago, months after the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor, the federal government opened up 10 concentration camps to warehouse every one of the 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry from the West Coast. Two-thirds of them were U.S. citizens. Most people believe that such a thing should never happen again in the United States to any group, racial, ethnic, religious, or otherwise. I'm Eric Muller, and I think the best way to make sure something doesn't happen again is to know what the thing was that actually happened. That's what this podcast does. It tells stories based on actual events in the lives of real people uprooted from their homes and forced to live in America's concentration camps, not because of anything they had done, but simply because of who they were. I call it Scapegoat Cities. Yamato, notify all key men in the various cities that there will be a meeting in your Los Angeles restaurant next Friday night. You can get away from that college without being missed? <laughs> we play football in Los Angeles next weekend. As one of the cheerleaders, it will be necessary for me to go. I'll be able to visit other cities this fall in the same way. Not bad, eh? That's a clip from a lousy Hollywood movie called Betrayal California, from the East that came out just as the war in Europe was ending in 1945. It takes place before the United States enters the war in 1941 and tells the story of a network of Japanese spies in the United States who are intent on pilfering American plans for defending the Panama Canal. The head spook is the guy giving orders in the clip, Lieutenant Commander Miyazaki, a good-looking young Japanese man with perfect English who's got an ideal cover. He's the captain of the Stanford University cheerleading squad, which means he can travel around the West Coast doing nefarious deeds at away games. Now, this was a load of nonsense, but the movie claimed it was a true story about real people. I don't mean that the publicity materials for the movie said the events really happened. I mean that the movie itself said that the events really happened. The producers got Drew Pearson, one of the most trusted, nationally syndicated columnists of his day, to kick the movie off playing himself and assuring the audience that what they were about to see was all true. Betrayal from the East is a true story. Nobody could have made it up. The similarity to persons living and dead is not accidental. The similarity to persons living and dead was not accidental. It might seem absurd to think that a person of Japanese ancestry could have managed to become the head cheerleader at a California university in the midst of the racism and segregation of early 1940s America. But that really happened. An extraordinary young man from Los Angeles, Hitoshi Yonemura, a Nisei or second generation Japanese American, was the captain of what was called the Yell Squad at UCLA in the 1941 football season, his senior year. He wasn't a Japanese spy. In fact, he might have been the most charismatic patriot of his Nisei generation. He liked to go by the name Mo. This is Mo Yonemura's story. Mo Yonemura was irrepressible. That's the best word I can find for him. He was born in Los Angeles in 1920, the youngest of the four children of Yonataro Yonemura, a grocer who immigrated from Japan in 1901, and his wife Kyoko, who came in 1913. When Yonataro died in 1929 at 49 years old, just a month before the stock market crash, Mo was barely nine. 
Kyoko had to carry on through the Great Depression with four children and no breadwinner. This was not an auspicious start to young Mo's life. And it's not as though the prospects for a Nisei kid socially or educationally were a whole lot better than the economic ones. Society was still pretty segregated, and although things were improving, when push came to shove, most whites were just not prepared to accept the Nisei as genuine citizens. Young Japanese Americans understood that most of their opportunities in life would lie inside their ethnic community, not outside it. Even the best and the brightest, the young people who attended schools like UCLA and Berkeley, were for the most part heading back to the family farm after graduation, or looking for work in ethnic enclaves like LA's Little Tokyo. If you look at UCLA's 1941 yearbook, you'll see just 30 Nisei out of about 800 graduating seniors. And when you leaf through the pages of clubs and organizations and teams, Mortarboard and Mu Phi Epsilon and the Rally Committee and the Society for the Advancement of Management and the Yeoman and the Campus Theater and the Blue Sea Society, you don't see any of those 30 Nisei seniors, not one. You see a sea of white faces. It's almost the same thing if you flip to the page that shows the student council of the junior class. Almost. There, you see 49 white faces and Mo Yonamura's. Against all odds, Mo Yonamura made himself one of the most popular and accomplished students at UCLA during his almost four years on campus. He did everything. He was everywhere. He came to campus on an ROTC scholarship, which was probably the only way he could afford to attend. By his sophomore year, he was already on the five-man yell squad, out in front of the football crowds every Saturday with a dazzling smile and a megaphone, leading the stands in singing UCLA's fight song, By the Old Pacific, which is what you hear in the background. At the end of sophomore year, his classmates elected Mo as their class treasurer, alongside other class officers with last names like Lloyd and Moore and McClellan. In his junior year at UCLA, Mo became a member of the rally committee, the only non-white in a group of some 60 men, and he moved into the number two position on the Yale squad. During his senior year, it's hard to know how he even found time to sleep. He was captain of the Yale squad. He was a member of the senior class council. In early December, he led the Toy Loan Parade, a procession through dorms and fraternity and sorority houses to collect toys for underprivileged children. In January of 1942, he helped relaunch the Breakfast Club, a morning gathering of faculty members, administrators, and student leaders. In late February of 1942, Mo was chosen as the new chairman of the university's service and music board. And he got busy fast, creating a program he called Singaroo, which was a daytime buildup to an evening event called the All You Sing, which was a concert by big names of the day, including the swing singer Martha Tilton, backed by the Gus Arnheim band, and the African-American novelty singing duo Slim and Slam, who no doubt tickled the audience with their biggest hit, Flat Fleet Fluji with a Floy Floy. Now the name of this song is the Flat Fleet Fluji. The Flat Fleet Fluji with the Floy Floy. The Flat Fleet Fluji with the Floy Floy. The Flat Fleet Fluji with the Floy Floy. The Floy Joy, the Floy Joy, the Floy Joy, the Floy Joy. The Flat Fleet. 
Mo's idea with Singaroo was to ramp up the festivities early in the mid-afternoon with a coke dance at the campus coffee shop, proceeds going to charity, of course, and then a fancy catered dinner from which students could go straight off to the evening concert. Mo said in the campus paper that his Singaroo events would create, and I'm quoting, an uninterrupted sequence of fun for the UCLA student body. But every uninterrupted sequence of college fun has to come to an end eventually. It came earlier for Mo than for his classmates. On May 8th of 1942, a story appeared in the campus newspaper with the simple headline, Yonamura Evacuated. It announced that their beloved Mo would leave the next morning for what it called a Japanese evacuation center. In reality, the place he was headed for was a concentration camp. The Pomona Assembly Center was the official name the government gave it. And it was a temporary detention facility in Los Angeles where the government would warehouse thousands of Issei and Nisei for the summer of 1942 before moving them out to permanent camps in the fall. You might expect a person to collapse in despair at a moment like this. Mo played baseball. The afternoon before he was scheduled to surrender, Mo stayed on campus to play in the annual baseball game pitting faculty members against graduating seniors. Mo started on the mound for the seniors, throwing three good innings before making way for a reliever. The faculty won the game 10 to 2, but only by bringing in a lot of underclassmen as ringers. As graduation approached, Mo's classmates voted to name him one of just 16 recipients of UCLA's Senior Honor Award a coveted prize that went to the men and women of the senior class who distinguished themselves as Californians for scholarship, for service to their alma mater, and for loyalty. Mo wasn't there to receive it. He was behind barbed wire at Pomona. It's easy to imagine a person sulking in their barracks in a situation like this, but that was not how Mo Yonamura rolled. Within two weeks of arriving at Pomona, the 21-year-old was named the assistant director of recreation at the camp and was organizing camp-wide dances to take place every Wednesday and Saturday night. By early June, Mo was emceeing talent shows at the camp, complete with lighting and a PA system. His first show drew an audience of 3,000 and featured acts like Potts Besho on the clarinet, a choral group called the Aloha Serenaders, a hula dancing troupe, and a harmonica player named Chick Ikezoe. Even though Mo had to miss his own graduation, that didn't stop him from organizing a commencement ceremony in camp where some 200 elementary, junior high, high school, and junior college graduates got diplomas from the schools they'd been kicked out of around the state. Mo was back at it on the 4th of July, emceeing a four-hour talent show in front of a crowd of 5,000. And then he did it again a week later, and then again, two weeks after that. In August, Mo and his mother and siblings were shipped out from Pomona to the Heart Mountain Relocation Center in Northwest Wyoming, but Mo did not even break stride. He chaired the camp's first talent show on Labor Day. A few days later, the camp's white administrators appointed him as Heart Mountain's social recreation director. In December, Mo chaired the Christmas Celebration Committee, which among other things, delivered toys to all of the children at Heart Mountain. In March, Mo was on the local Wyoming radio station, reading ads for the Red Cross during breaks between songs in a live music broadcast featuring Heart Mountain's resident swing band. And then, Mo joined the Army. In the spring of 1943, the Army began recruiting Nisei from the camps to join a segregated unit, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, 
which would link up with an existing unit called the 100th Battalion, made up of volunteers from Hawaii. Finding Japanese-American volunteers in Hawaii wasn't that hard because the Nisei there weren't really resentful. While the government was locking up the Nisei on the mainland, it left the Hawaiians free to go about their business, which it pretty much had to do because the Japanese were almost 40% of the population, and locking them up would have shut the islands down. So when Uncle Sam came looking for volunteers, young Hawaiian Nisei like Daniel Inoue, a recent high school graduate who was thinking of a medical career and had no idea he'd one day end up a U.S. senator, were only too eager to sign up. In the camps on the mainland, recruitment was a much tougher sell. The army optimistically imagined that they'd get a couple thousand volunteers from the 10 camps, but only a few hundred actually volunteered. Heart Mountain produced the smallest number of all, but it should come as no surprise that the irrepressible Mo Yonomura was among them. With his ROTC training, he could step straight in as an officer, and with his patriotic can-do attitude, that's just what he wanted to do. He headed for training to Camp Shelby in Mississippi in October of 1943 as a second lieutenant. We can now fast forward 18 months and shift across the Atlantic to northern Italy, the so-called Gothic Line, a network of fortifications running east to west across the peninsula that Hitler saw as crucial to protecting his southern flank. Allied assaults on the line in 1944 had failed, mostly because the terrain was nearly impossible, a killing field of exposed valleys and steep and densely wooded hills. In the spring of 1945, with Allied forces pressing hard on the German heartland from both west and east, the British and the Americans decided the time was right to smash through the Gothic line from the south. U.S. Army Command gave the 442nd and the 100th a tough task, a diversionary assault on the mountainous western end of the line where German pillboxes dotted nearly every hilltop. The Nisei soldiers had a motto, go for broke, and that's what they did in Italy in April of 1945, breaking through the line in just 24 hours of brutal fighting on April 5th and 6th. For the rest of the month, the 442nd and the 100th chased the Germans north through mountainous terrain. The Germans didn't turn tail and run. Instead, they fought intensely to hold the crucial elevations and protect a Reich that, although they didn't know it, was entering its final collapse hundreds of miles to their north. By April 21st, the fighting was in the mountains near San Terenzo, where German units were fighting to hold on to hilltop outposts against a furious assault from the 442nd and the 100th. That afternoon, Mo Yonomura was exploring terrain as a spotter for a rifle company that was assigned to an assault on a heavily fortified hilltop. As his platoon advanced into a valley and then up a hill, Mo's job was to scope out the enemy positions to help his artillery pinpoint their fire. With his group pinned down to the ground by blistering enemy machine gun and small arms fire, Mo stayed standing behind a tree to try to get a decent view of the enemy's position. Maybe he edged out slightly from behind the tree, or, or maybe a sniper took advantage of an unexpected angle, or maybe he was just in the wrong spot in space at the wrong moment in time in a wicked firefight. But in one terrible instant, bullets struck Mo in the chest and killed him. The assault was successful, though. His squad took that hill. At almost the same moment, a few miles away, First Lieutenant Daniel Inoue from Honolulu was leading a similar assault on a similarly well-defended hilltop. Inoue got closer to the top than Yonamura did and managed to neutralize a machine gun nest from close range with a grenade. 
Then he too stood up and was hit, first by a sniper's bullet, and then by a grenade that blew off his right arm. Unlike Yonemura, Inoue survived. Decades later, as a U.S. Senator from Hawaii, Daniel Inoue would go on to play a key role in obtaining an apology and redress from the U.S. government for what it had done during the war. Not to him in Hawaii, but to mainlanders like Mo Yonemura and his family at concentration camps like the Heart Mountain Relocation Center, places where Issei mothers like Kyoko Yonemura had to open their barrack room doors to somber uniformed men with sorrowful news about their sons. Betrayal from the East, that supposedly true-to-life movie about a Japanese spy posing as the captain of a cheerleading squad, hit the nation's movie screens on April 24, 1945, three days after Mo Yonemura was killed in action. We don't know whether Mrs. Yonemura had gotten word yet that her son was dead. We can only hope that she was spared the horror of ever seeing the film. You might wonder why I included a little bit of the story of Daniel Inoue in telling the story of Mo Yonemura. It's partly because of the remarkable, tragic coincidence that they both became casualties on the same day, in nearly the same place, at nearly the same moment. But it's also partly because of what Daniel Inoue went on to become, one of the heroes of the second half of the American 20th century by any measure. With the empty right sleeve of his suit jacket pinned to his side, he questioned Nixon administration officials with quiet but devastating confidence on national television as a member of the Senate Watergate Committee. A decade or so later, he would reprise the role of interrogator as chairman of the Senate Committee investigating the Iran-Contra affair. In 2010, his 48th year in the Senate, his colleagues elected him president pro temp third in the line of succession to the Presidency of the United States. Can you imagine what the irrepressible Mo Yonemura might have accomplished? Thanks for listening to this episode of Scapegoat Cities. If you like what you hear, let me know by leaving a comment at scapegoatcities.org. Or better yet, let your friends and family know on Twitter or Facebook or however else you like to tell your people about the podcasts you like. Maybe even turn on some people you don't know to Scapegoat Cities by rating and reviewing it on iTunes or wherever else you go to get your podcasts. I'm Eric Muller, and again, thanks for listening. Let me wander over yonder till I see the mountains rise. I want to ride to the ridge where the west commences and gaze at the moon until I lose my senses. I can't look at hobbles and I can't stand fences. Don't fence me in.